So two of my three predictions have already come true. Yes, there will be a trial in the Senate of former President Trump. Unconstitutional as it is, I predicted the Senate would vote that way. I also predicted that the Chief Justice would not preside, nor would the Vice President. Two out of three. We'll wait to see if the third prediction, an acquittal largely on the ground of lack of jurisdiction, will also become reality. That's the past. Now we're going to talk about the future. I have a great, great interview subject today, Will Chamberlain, a young voice of the future, somebody who is very important on social media, someone who presents an argument in favor of free speech and against censorship. He has some great, innovative, interesting ideas on how to deal with censorship on the Internet. So please uh, stay tuned and listen carefully to our guest, Will Chamberlain. On today's Dirt Show, we have an extraordinary guest, somebody who's had a big impact on social media, uh, represents a kind of dissenting view from that which we hear from many in today's media. He is uh, an older millennium person uh, and doesn't necessarily reflect the views, but understands the views of his um, age contemporaries. And we'll have an opportunity to dig deeply into what the future, what the future of social media may look like. But before we get to the future, I want to go to the past for just a minute and bring you up to date on uh, what's going on with the impeachment and removal trial of former President Trump. Two of my three predictions that I made over the past several days uh, came true uh, yesterday. I still have the third one that's outstanding. Uh, I predicted the Senate would vote to put uh, the former president on trial, even though in my view that's unconstitutional. Um, I was also right when I said that uh, the presiding officer would neither be the chief justice, because this is not the trial of a president, nor the vice president, although she's entitled to preside. I think she sees that it would create a possible conflict of interest because she may be the candidate for the Democratic Party running against the man that she's trying to disqualify by this uh, by this uh, impeachment. And so two out of three so far, we still have the third prediction, and that is that the president will be acquitted and will be acquitted in large part because there won't be enough votes on the jurisdictional issue. Well, I said there were already enough votes on the jurisdictional issue, so what did I mean? All you need is a simple majority to get jurisdiction, but then you need two-thirds to convict, and if there's more than one-third that doesn't think there is jurisdiction, they will vote to acquit, either on the jurisdictional grounds or on the merits. So although things could change, this is not a 100% prediction, I'm fairly confident that we will see a trial with a lot of posturing, and uh, in the end, there'll be an acquittal. The thing that really gets me annoyed is uh, Majority Leader Schumer. He knows better. He graduated Harvard Law School. He's a smart guy. All right, I can understand him saying it's a close question on jurisdiction. Uh, I think there is jurisdiction. The Constitution, after all, does say that a president not only can be removed, but he can be disqualified. All right, I can see him saying it's a close question. But for Chuck Schumer, there are no such things as close questions. <clears throat> he is such an extremist in his views, as are most of the leaders of the Democratic Party today, Jamie Raskin, Adam Schiff. For them, they know it's a close question. At least they won't admit it. Oh, no, it's open and shut. It's crystal clear. Every scholar in the world agrees that there's jurisdiction. Nonsense. It may be true that most scholars say there's jurisdiction, 
They don't believe it. They know it's a close question. But for them, they hide their partisan political outcomes uh, under the veneer of scholarship. And so Schumer's doing the same thing. There will be a trial. Uh, It will probably be a relatively short trial. There's not going to be a lot of disagreement about uh, evidence. There may be disagreement about causal relationship between the president's uh, speech, the former president's speech on December 6th, and what happened, the horrible events that happened in the Capitol. But there won't be a dispute about the speech because it's uh, all on videotape. Uh, Although some of the major media always leave out of the speech uh, Trump's statement that he wants peaceful and patriotic protest, that will be seen by the Senate. CNN will probably take that part out the way they always do, but at least the senators will see uh, everything. So that's my rant for the morning. Now we'll go on to a very serious conversation with uh, Will uh, Chamberlain, uh, who is uh, an editor. And why don't you tell us, Will, uh, your own background, just a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do today so my viewers and listeners will have a better sense of what you represent and what kind of questions they can put to you and I can put to you. Will? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Alan. Um, I guess we can go back to even around the college age. I played poker for a living very briefly all the way back in 2003. Um, So we can talk about what would you play? Would would you play Hold'em? Would you play Hold'em? Hold'em. I mean, that was really the only game. So limit and no limit uh, Hold'em. You'll be interested. You'll be interested. I was once asked to take a case about whether poker is gambling. And I said, no, uh, poker is a game of skill which has elements of gambling, as every game of skill has elements of gambling. And I said to the court, uh, the best proof that it's a game of skill is that I lose all the time. If it were, in fact, a game of chance, I'd win, you know, at least 40, 50 percent of the time. But I lose all the time to much more skilled players. So I'm sure you are a winner and a skilled player. So you are a poker player. That's a very, very important attribute of life today in the world to understand risks and make important decisions based on risks. What else? Um, Okay. And so I ultimately, I went to, uh, went to college university, the Pacific, where I competed in in, uh, the parliamentary debate on the national circuit, coached that for another two years at the university of Oregon. Um, And then law school at Georgetown Uh, graduated in 2015, Uh, briefly practiced at uh, Quinn Emanuel as a litigator. Uh, and then Great law firm. Uh, yeah. Did was, you know Kathleen? Did you know Kathleen Sullivan? I, I never I never met Kathleen. She was in the New York <laughs> office. I was out in L.A. Uh, with uh, John Quinn and, and a few others. Um, although I just ultimately Kathleen was. The, yeah. Ka- uh, Kathleen was one of my real star students. The first a couple of years I taught at Harvard, I identified her literally on day one <clears throat> and said, this is a woman who will accomplish Anything she wants. And of course, she became the dean of Stanford Law School, a great professor at Harvard, the first woman to have her name on a Wall Street firm and a great, great litigator. Indeed. Indeed. Um, After that, I worked at I transitioned to nonprofit and worked at the Competitive Enterprise Institute um, on their class action fairness litigation. So I don't know if you're familiar with Ted Frank and his work, uh, but he objects to unfair class action settlements. and, And I've uh, so I did some work on that. Um, but ultimately, I've transitioned kind of into more politics and advocacy. I now uh, about bit last year, uh, sorry, in 2019. So two years ago, I purchased Human Events uh, and now co-publish it on, on at humanevents.com. 
Um, and I also serve as senior counsel to the Internet Accountability Project and the Article 3 Project. Uh, the Internet <laughs> Accountability Project is focused on fighting um, social media censorship and big tech abuses. And the Article 3 Project was focused on confirming President Trump's judicial appointees. So my first question to you is, what's wrong with your generation? <clears throat> Why don't your contemporaries have a greater appreciation for freedom of speech, dissent, due process? Uh, before you even answer that question, do you know people in your generation like that? Do they talk to you? Or are you, because you're a dissenter on many of these issues, are you a pariah with others in that generation? It varies. I mean, there are some people who really do see me as this this horrible figure. Uh, I find that bizarre. But there are plenty of others who, uh, while practicing Ketman in their daily lives, you know, come to me in their private moments to confess that, indeed, they don't think everything is OK and they really feel horribly censored. Um, in general, though, I mean, not to, you know, not to shift the blame for my generation, but these they're only doing what they were taught. Um, you know, after with my experiences on university campuses, taught, taught by my generation. So you're going to no, put the blame I, on my generation. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe we can right. just join. We can put it on Generation X or something like that, and, okay. and say that they're the they're the bad professors that taught my generation poorly. Uh, but I, I see, you know, a lot of what happened on university campuses is essentially this just radical acceleration of left wing ideas there, and. As a result, it went from a place where maybe in 2008, 2009, you could be a Republican, people wouldn't really see a problem with that, to a point where by 2015, that was just seen as beyond the truly beyond the pale. And the, the debate was really between the liberals and the leftists. And, and honestly, the liberals, I feel like they really just didn't have an effective defense to the con consistent left-wing advances ideologically, because they, they were conceding some of these basic premises. Like if if, you know, if the single most important value is anti-racism and, and if that's the single most important value you have and it just trumps everything else, then why do you need to tolerate speech that is secondary if it, if it interferes with the anti-racist project? Um, and so the inability to say there the lack of grounding and values that other than anti-racism, uh, freedom, liberty, I think ultimately is sort of responsible for some of the acceleration you're seeing and why is, free speech isn't that valued on the left, on the right or in, is anti-racism anti really anti-racism? Take, for example, the woman who has just been nominated to become the head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, Christine Clark, I think. She purports to be an anti-racist, but her own writings and history show that she believes that blacks are uh, racially superior that the amount of melanin that you have in your skin determines your intelligence and your energy level. Uh, when she was a student at Harvard, she invited a professor from Wellesley uh, who uh, believed uh, that Jews dominate and control the slave trade in the world and that blacks are superior in every way. So are we talking about anti-racism here or are we talking about kind of racial preferences and identity politics. Is the goal of anti-racism really anti-racism and equality? Is it Martin Luther King's dream that his children will be judged by the quality of their character rather than the color of their skin? Or is it something else? Well, I mean, again, it, it depends on how you define racism. And, and the left notices that and wages what I call semantic campaigns to redefine words so that they can only be used to their benefit. So, I mean, the, think about the formulation of racism equals prejudice plus power. 
that's a very common one that you see now. And it, you know, there's, there's a rationale for it, right? Well, maybe if you have power, sure. then discrimination and prejudice is worse. Okay. I understand your rationale, but it's, but, it but, seems but very who convenient. Has the power, they define power in a racist way. They don't say mm -hmm. you particularly have the power, but you're a Jew and therefore you belong to a group that has power as if all Jews exercise their power in the same way. It's a variation of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Uh, and I focus only on Jews here, but they say the same thing about whites. If you know, if you're, if you're pale and Yale and uh, male, uh, you have power. It doesn't matter if your family came from the Ozarks and you worked your way up. If you fit those three classifications you have power isn't that a form of racism a form of identity politics isn't all identity politics essentially a form of of, of, of racial identification or identifications based on factors that aren't necessarily relevant i think properly understood you're right i think i think part of but you know just understanding what the left's project is it's to take these incredibly powerful weighted ideas and and things that we want to avoid and then essentially shape them so that they can very easily be applied to one's adversaries in the out group. And it's very difficult to then apply that definition to people within the in group. Um, and, and ironically that power to define what words mean is sort of a power that should be conceived of as part of the power plus prejudice formulation as well. Right. If you have the ability to define what these words mean, are you really that powerless? Uh, and I mean, that's, I think a really broad problem in, in, in the academy and, and they've sort of embraced it all the way. And so, I mean, I remember, you know, as I said, I did college debate. Uh, I remember watching a, a final national championship debate round. I had a video of it. I don't know that it ever got published, but the winning team uh, involved, the debate included basically, and you know, it was a team of uh, two black students and, and facing off against two white students and the black, one of the black students said, the reason you should vote for us judge is because that that means the white person will lose and it will be good for them to lose. It's good for them to feel like reduced to this. And and it, it was just, it's shocking. It's, it's nothing that resembles anything um, close to what debate should look like, but it's, it's a natural byproduct of this really insidious ideology in the Academy. Well, it's spreading beyond the Academy. I'm a big baseball fan. And um, one of my uh, 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 transforming events of my Baseball life was when the Boston Red Sox were behind the Yankees three nothing, and uh, came back and not only won four games in a row to win the American League championship, but then the World Series. And of course, the star of that was a pitcher named Kurt Schilling. And Kurt Schilling mm -hmm. has been kept out of the Hall of Fame now, I think, nine years in a row, plainly because of his politics. And uh, today, if you are uh, a great pitcher, but you're politically incorrect and your attitudes, you're not going to make it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and so uh, obviously it's permeating all aspects of uh, society. How do, we, how do we fight back? How do true egalitarians who believe in process, who believe in free speech, who believe in due process, who believe in equal opportunities, who believe in trying to make the starting point the same for all people, hard as that may be, how do we persuade your generation or the generation after your generation? How do we persuade them that this is ultimately a better approach than basing things on race, gender, and other forms of identity that are essentially immutable? I mean, it's a, it's a massive problem. I think, I think there are basically two places you would need to focus. Um, 
know, just off the top of my head. One is the universities. Uh, I don't know how you fix the radical left-wing shift, but I, I mean, I think that one smart thing to do would be to have a massive political diversity push. Um, I think it's totally unacceptable that, you know, I mean, the, the entire American population funds these universities, uh, uh, public universities. And mo many of their departments are staffed by 95% to 100% Democrats and, and a single Republican. We, sh we should see that as unacceptable. I, I think if, if we expect our students to be going and getting a broad education, a pluralist understanding of the, of the world, if, if they're going to departments that have zero conservatives or colleges that have a 2% conservative professoriate, we should see that as basically unacceptable and not worthy of any government subsidy. Uh, well, how do you change it, though? How do you change it? The departments claim that they're picking people on their merits. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not putting them behind screens and making them play the viola and picking them the way the Boston Symphony Orchestra picks them. But they claim they're just picking the best chemists, the best biologists, the best political scientists, the, the best uh, everything. And they just happen to turn out all to be uh, radical leftists. I'm going to give you just two, two examples. Brooklyn College, which I went to. And um, I was a star student at Brooklyn College, captain of the debate team like you and all of mm -hmm. that. I can't get invited to speak at Brooklyn College today um, because I'm pro-Israel and no department will invite a pro-Israel speaker. Uh, at Berkeley, for example, they have a new rule. And that is if a department invites you, you can come tomorrow. But if it's just students who invite you, then you have to wait eight weeks and go through this and that, and the semester is over. And so um, I was invited by a student group to go, and no faculty, no no department would invite me to contest the BDS movement, the boycott movement against Israel. And so I couldn't speak, and I threatened to file a federal lawsuit saying you're practicing de facto discrimination uh, based on viewpoint as a public university. And of course, the university folded. And the dean of the law school invited me on behalf of the law school and everything went forward and we had a great conversation and a great debate. But I can't get invited today to speak at universities by faculty because of my pro-Israel views. Some people think my pro-Trump views. I'm not pro-Trump. I'm pro-Constitution. But nonetheless, because I defended Trump on the floor of the Senate, <clears throat> my invitations are no longer uh, forthcoming. How do we fight that? Uh, I agree with you that today, mm -hmm. when you hear diversity, it's a euphemism for more people like us. That's what diversity means. Diversity means more people who look like us and think like us and act like us. The last thing most diversity parts of universities want is diverse political views. They don't go to the Ozarks and and recruit. They don't go to poor white areas and, and recruit. They don't recruit uh, people who uh, favor the Second Amendment, people who have strong views uh, uh, about border control. Uh, that's not the kind of diversity they want. They want people to look different but think the same. Right. I, I agree. And I also agree with this, the need to focus on what are we going to do about it. Um, I think the I don't know that it would work, but the only obvious way to like even start to redress this, I think, and, and to sort of attack the whole problem broadly is to think about making political affiliation a protected class um, to the point that we say we have all these different anti-discrimination laws that have effectively worked. I mean, you know, when you think about what you're just talking about, how uh, all these uh, universities employ nothing but radical leftists and they say, well, you know, we're just, you know, looking at the merits of the candidates and we just happen to only 
have leftists. Well, that wouldn't fly if we were talking about race or that wouldn't fly if we were talking about religion. Like, oh, you just happen to only employ white professors. Like, no, we see a, we see the problem there. Um, you would have to fix things and you would be facing serious litigation if you didn't fix things. Well, it sounds like perhaps we need to do a similar thing with political affiliation, that if a university can't find a way to staff with at least 10% conservative Republican Mm-hmm. professors, then perhaps we just, you know, that's de facto evidence that you are discriminating against conservatives. So I have a humorous uh, question for you. You know, the great, great uh, lawyer, uh, great criminal lawyer back in the 1920s, um, uh, he always, when he had a trial, he, they allowed you to, they allowed you to, to smoke cigarettes in the courtroom back in the day. This is Clarence Darrow. And what he would mm-hmm. do is he would smoke a cigarette and he put a wire through the cigarette. And so the ash would never fall off when he smoked the cigarette. And when his opponent was making important points, he would always smoke the cigarette, and the jurors would see the ash wasn't falling off, and they would just (laughs) focus and concentrate. When is the ash going to fall off? So I'm looking at you, and I see your books behind Mm -hmm. you in a pile that look like they're going to fall any second now how do you keep those books up and how do you make sure ah that it's we a, watch out, don't watch out. all oh, no. look look oh, at no. the books look at the books I never <laughs> okay so, so what's your shelf. point what do you have those books behind it's a bookshelf so bookshelf. Ah, these are the, the, it's the, a these are little shelves shelf. it's a it's a little right. bit of an illusion so that's now what's we can there. come back and we can focus on you we don't have to think about when that book when those books are going to fall on you. Okay. Mm. So um, political protection of political ideology. That's a very interesting idea. How do you do that? I mean, remember, political ideology is not quite like race, although race doesn't fall into, uh, you know, binary classification. Gender doesn't any longer fall into a binary classification. At least we know it when we see it. Uh, What political views would have to be included in protected classes. You'd say conservatives. But even conservatives today, uh, the Federalist Society was very prominent um, when I was teaching at Harvard, and it represented a kind of centrist conservative view. And there are today many to the right of the Federalist Society as well, uh, likewise on the left. Obviously, I'm, I'm a liberal and the people I hate the most politically in the world are radical leftists who I think are intolerant and often anti-Semitic and often anti-intellectual in every possible way. How do you create categories that would make uh, political ideology a protected class? I mean, you're you, now you're actually getting an area where I'm, I guess, less confident about the right answer because, I mean, it is really challenging. And because also if you're talking about political affiliation, okay, what about, let's go all the way to the extreme. What about neo-Nazis or what about communists, yeah. right? Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, like how much protection do they deserve? Are there situations where that mean, I think even some of our current statutes, you know, explicitly allow discrimination yeah. against communists. Um, well, and in so, fact, you know, I began my political career uh, mm-hmm. at Brooklyn College, which was known as the Little Red Schoolhouse, because it had been a center of communism, as City College was in the 1930s, Brooklyn College was in the 1940s, and they brought in a president from the Midwest to rid Brooklyn College of communism, and one of the leaders of the effort to rid Brooklyn College of communism was a man named Professor Eugene Scalia, a brilliant, wonderful professor 
whose son you may have heard of. He became Justice mm-hmm. Scalia, whose grandson uh, obviously is a very prominent uh, member of the uh, Republican uh, leadership uh, today. And I was fighting to make sure that communists could not be excluded from teaching. Uh, the best math professor I had in high school was a former communist, uh, Mr. Wallach. Uh, and uh, he was just brilliant, never, never allowed his political views to interfere with geometry and trigonometry, but he was fired from the public schools, fortunately came to my little yeshiva, where he was a phenomenal professor. And I didn't even know whether he was really a communist or just somebody who may have been a fellow traveler or refused to answer questions about his communism. So, uh, but you're right. I mean, what, what do you do if David Duke gets a PhD and uh, decides he wants to apply to teach uh, at a major school? And if there were blind grading, he would get the position, but do we really want our students to be taught by neo-Nazis? I'll tell you my position. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I would, if you required a David Duke or a communist to be not discriminated against in order to bring real political diversity to a university, I would say the marketplace of ideas could tolerate that. Uh, it doesn't mean students would have to sign up for his classes. It doesn't mean that he gets uh, ratings of the most popular teacher. Maybe he would. Who knows? Maybe he will convince some students. But if you genuinely really believe in the marketplace of ideas, then you shouldn't really have exclusions based on ideology. Let's defeat them in the marketplace of ideas. Right. And I, I mean, in a sense, I think it's really important. I, I think there's a lot of value as a conservative student that I got out of going to a place like Georgetown Law and just facing off against very, very talented, brilliant liberal professors all the time. Um, and well, I, I had the that... same experience. Yeah. Uh, I had John Hospers as my favorite professor uh, of uh, ethics and philosophy at Brooklyn College. John Hospers ultimately became a libertarian candidate for president of the United States, um, very much a supporter of Ayn Rand and others. I learned so much. And even from students, I learned a lot from Ted Cruz when he was a student mm-hmm. in my class because he always asked the most provocative questions to students did not love him all the time. Uh, in fact, they used to play Cruz Bingo. They had a series of key words that Cruz would always say, and when he said it, they would mark off their bingo cards. And then at the end, whoever had the most Cruz Bingos uh, would have to say something in class uh, contradictory to Cruz. But, you know, students learned a lot from Cruz, and I, I think maybe Cruz learned a lot from students. I'm sure your experience at Georgetown was very, very enlightening to you. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, I was sort of used as the foil for some like Paul Butler, for example, would routinely call on me in criminal procedure because he could count on me to take the sort of conservative position in all these cases, um, which and I'm honestly kind of more of a civil libertarian and, and, and generally skeptical of mass incarceration, things like that. But on the specific questions in criminal procedure where, you know, he'd be like, is there reasonable suspicion here? I'd be like, yeah, there's reasonable suspicion here. Why is this person behaving so strangely on the street? Clearly, the police should be, you know, the police officers should be able to stop them. Um, I was routinely, you know, I was routinely called upon for that. And I always found that I, I love the Socratic method and, and being essentially forced to defend myself and and and. Well, you know, the Socratic method, the Socratic method is dying at law schools uh, today. Uh, Some law schools won't allow Socratic teachers to teach first year students because the snowflakes uh, in the class are upset by being asked hard questions. And uh, the worst thing that ever happened to law school teaching 
are the popularity contests, the students' evaluations, because the student evaluations, the best evaluations, go to the professors who never contradict anything the students want to hear. Um, I call them uh, uh, academic massage therapists. Um, they're there to just make life easy for the students, to reaffirm everything the students came in with, never to challenge them, never to question them, to give them more ammunition to go out into the world and think that they are completely truthful and correct in everything they say, and teachers, therefore, incline in, in that uh, direction. Uh, and um, when I first started teaching, the teachers who got the best evaluations were those who were most confrontational, those who uh, were most challenging. And today, the political correctness among teaching is not to challenge the students. And uh, so the Socratic method is dying. And we're seeing more and more teachers just lecturing and using other methods and uh, not confronting students. But uh, I don't think we're getting better results uh, from our teaching from that uh, methodology. No, certainly not. I think, I mean, the Socratic method, if you want to listen to a lecture at this point, I mean, you can watch, listen to a podcast. I, I don't know, to me, just like straight listening to someone talking for, for 60 minutes is, is such a such so so relatively less valuable than than a Socratic mm -hmm. exchange where you know you're pressed to not just think through the answer to this question but think through okay how is how is this position defensible like what angles are they going to come yeah. at me from and, and can I defend this from a, an examination right. uh, I mean, yeah. you, you can't replicate not what that to with think. lecture right not what to think but how to think I had a rule in my fifty years of teaching never say anything in a class that the students could look up in a book. Mm -hmm. Everything in the classroom had to be something they could not find in a book. And that book would include my own writings. So if I've already written it, hey, I can assign it, the students can read it, but the classroom, those 90 minutes or those 60 minutes, are reserved for how to think about things, things you cannot find in books. And today, I think that's not not going on. So I want to talk to you about the future of uh, free speech. Uh, we've bemoaned the lack of appreciation for free speech by students who think they know the truth. And what do you need dissent if you know the truth? If you think that every woman who's ever accused a man is, of course, telling the truth, why do you need due process? Just base convictions on accusations. Uh, if you think that you know the answer to the complexity of racial problems in America, why do you need dissenting points of view on that? Um, um, in something I'm writing now, I'm arguing that your generation is already having a tremendous influence on the newsrooms and the social media. And 10, 15 years from now, when you're in your uh, late 40s or mid 40s, you will be the CEOs of all the major companies. You will be the editors in chief of The New York Times. You'll be the majority leader of the Senate. You'll be the presidential candidate. How do we stop these uh, anti-libertarian attitudes that are so pervasive among people in their 30s today from becoming the dominant culture? How do we make sure that cancel culture does not become American culture in the years to come? Well, here's where I actually think I have a, a decent answer. Uh, and that is, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that we need new laws that protect everybody's right to speak on social media. So I see social media as the basic public square. I think that the proper way to conceptualize the right to speak on social media is as a civil right. Um, I think of, you know, constitutional rights protections from what the government can do to do, but then a civil right is something that it's so important, so paramount that we say private companies can't infringe on that either. Um, and so I think, you know, if we have laws that say, 
you have the right to use Facebook and Twitter as long as you're speaking lawfully, um, as long as you're not breaking the law. And then moreover, the way to enforce that would be a kind of a private right of action. If Facebook or Twitter wrongfully censors you, you can go walk into court, get an injunction and get attorney's fees and maybe some statutory damages too. Um, and, and that's just the baseline. But why okay. does that, why does that not violate the first amendment rights of Twitter and Facebook who also have the right to decide what will be on their platform? Would you apply the same rule to the New York times? If I write a letter to the editor of the New York times and they refuse to publish it, obviously they have to refuse to publish 99% of the letters they get, but if they refuse to publish it on political grounds, I certainly don't have a cause of action against them. Are you saying right. because the social media, there's no limitation, there's no, li there's no limitation on how many letters can be published, like the New York Times has a limitation, that you would actually constrain the First Amendment rights of Facebook, of Twitter, and YouTube in the interest of creating a more global marketplace of ideas? Sure. I think, I mean, I, you know, a couple of basic answers, right? I think that the right of Americans to speak freely on social media is more important than Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey's free association rights. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, if, I mean, you, you would actually probably know this better than I do, but if I've talked to my dad about it and he says the same arguments were leveled against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, what about the free association rights of motel owners and um, restaurants, et cetera? Um, and ultimately those had to give way to the, the underlying civil right. Um, but the second point is, you know, this is sort of a novel use of 230, but Section 230 says that these companies are not the publisher, are not the speaker of these ideas. Okay, well, you're not the speaker. So to the extent that your freedom of speech rights are implicated, it should, it's, it's substantially less so than it would be otherwise. You know, we've already made the point, you, you, we've, you've already carved out an exception in the law that says, look, we're not responsible for all this third party content. Don't sue us for defamation, not our job. We're like, okay. But now you can't go. We think you should be a lot more constrained in terms of your picking and choosing who gets to speak and who doesn't, because you okay. know, if you're saying would you, you don't want to be. A, go ahead. Would you settle for the following compromise? Every media has to check a box. Yes, 230. No, 230. If you want to take advantage of 230, then you can't be a publisher and you can't pick and choose. If you don't want to take advantage of 230, you check the negative box and then you are the New York Times and you don't get uh, immunity from defamation. How about that? I'd be OK with that compromise. Um, I think that that's one way to handle it. Another way would be to essentially, you know, use kind of have a floor for the number of monthly users that this would apply to. So, you know, if you have, OK, a few hundred million users every month, well, then at that point, nobody thinks you're the speaker of the content. Everybody knows you're just a platform where people are posting. You can't possibly moderate it all. Um, and so, but you're also so big that you're now a major locus of communication for Americans, which means there's now this public interest in, in ensuring that people are able to speak to make the First Amendment meaningful. The other complaint that one hears from the social media is if you hold them responsible, then they have to engage in prior censorship. Right now, they engage in post-censorship. You can post anything you want, and then they take it down. But if they're responsible, then they would have to make sure that anything they posted passed whatever the test is that the government imposed. I mean, obviously, there you could also have a compromise and say you're not responsible for what's posted. You're only responsible for what you don't take down. How would you come down on that kind of an approach? 
So, I'm, I mean, I'm more sympathetic to the tech companies on that point. Their, their whole business model is predicated on third-party content. So they can't, you know, I mean, if they're able to get their business off the ground, they sort of need some amount of protection from being held responsible for every piece of third-party content their users post. I get that. Um, and I'm, so I'm sympathetic. This is why I'm, I'm not one of the people who's saying we need to just repeal Section 230. I think, it, you know, Section 230 was designed to solve a particular problem, this moderator's dilemma that they faced where they couldn't moderate at all if they wanted to avoid defamation liability. 230 solved that. Um, but me but, and for some people, 230 doesn't go far enough. Uh, take, for example, a television or radio talk show. Uh, they invite me to be a guest. I'm a reasonable guest. I have some good credentials. And then I say something outrageous and defamatory on their platform, which is radio or television. Right now, they can be sued. Now, they'll win the suit, probably, because they can prove they didn't have malice and I'm public figure. Or, or it depends who I defame. Um, but, um, uh, but what's true of YouTube and what's true of Facebook, to a degree, is true of talk radio. And it's not true of newspapers, but it's true of any media where things are said spontaneously. Uh, what they worry about is they will have to have an eight second delay and have a lawyer in the room at all times to make sure that nothing defamatory is said. So we've already confronted those problems a bit uh, on radio and television talk. Yeah. And I, and I agree that, you know, th those are all you know, they're real problems. And, and I don't, I feel like that many people who are trying to protect free speech on the internet are, are they're often like libertarian types. So they're reluctant to just make new laws. Um, you know, for example, mm -hmm. you know, this 230 was a law designed to deal with a defamation, you know, liability issue. The problem we're not dealing right. with is defamation. It's it's censorship. Um, and moreover, you know, that's not actually a very good remedy for people who are the victims of censorship. OK, you get banned on social media. So some other guy with a defamation claim can sue Twitter now like that. that what how does that redress your harm or your, your injury? And so and 90 yeah. percent of what's being censored is not defamatory. You know, the election was fixed. That's not defamatory. It's wrong, yeah. but it's mm -hmm. not defamatory. You don't defame anybody. So right. um, so just we have to wind up in a couple of minutes. Two questions for you. Uh, number one, um, if you were the czar of the First Amendment and the media, what two or three fixes would you try to put in? I know you want to reform universities. I'd like to do that, too. My one regret about retiring from Harvard six years ago is that I'm not there fighting against the forces of censorship right on the campus, which is so pervasive. So what are your what are your fixes? And then the second question, which we'll end with, is how do people get to hear more of you? I think you're a fa fantastic uh, voice and uh, intellect and people have to be able to access you more and more. So please, before we leave, tell us how to get more of you. Well, thank you. Um, so I guess the if I'm the czar, I actually have yeah. to ask a question. Can I how ridiculous can my czar actions be? Can they be truly, you know, tyrannical oh. or do I need to be reasonable within the bounds of, no. you know, government policy? You're you're a benevolent czar. So benevolent you want to do only good things. Right. OK, got it. All right. Well, OK, so I first I passed this law that creates a private rate of action for Americans to go into court if they their lawful speech is censored. Um, and then I also probably make a diversity requirement for moderation teams. I think that these moderation teams, the problem is, 
you know, they, they are looking for trust and safety, but it's an ideological monolith. So they only view it from the, the lens of, well, the right is dangerous. The right does all these things, but they never consider how the left does it. That's do, why. Do, pre- do you, th- do you think Facebook has done that? They've now appointed a, a bevy of platonic guardians, uh, former judges, former this and that, one law professor who's an extreme left-wing radical. I don't know what she's doing on this moderation board. But is that a decent approach, do you think, to try to remove the responsibility from Zuckerberg himself and put it on this group of guardians who will tell us what we can read and what we can see? Do you like that? I mean, it's a slight improvement. I think that but in general, it's still missing all the components of due process that you'd have if your speech was being censored by, for example, a public university campus. So where's notice? Where's the opportunity to be heard? Where's the idea of a consistent body of law that you can apply and appeal to a third part, you know, a neutral arbiter? I mean, is, is this body neutral? Well, it's just the one body that Facebook chose for itself. How balanced is it? It's not subject to democratic accountability, et cetera. Um, I think that you know, if we want to have a world where these sites continue to censor, I think that those protections need to be in place because right now, you know, Twitter is effectively the the legislator, the enforcement agency and the adjudicator of every censorship dispute that just for when they're that big a center of, of public discourse, I think that's clearly off. So. OK, so where do we get more of you? Oh, we want more. We want more. <laughs> we want more. Come on. Give I, us an opportunity I appreciate that. To yeah. Find so. you. Yeah. You can find me. Okay, so first off, humanevents.com is our our news and opinion website. You can find our articles um, there all the time. Uh, I am very active on Twitter at Will Chamberlain. That's probably the place where I'm most prominent. Um, and I'm also on on Periscope for out for the next two months at Will Chamberlain as well. And we do we have YouTube uh, and Facebook, YouTube.com/slash/humanevents. That's where I regularly live stream. I think that's that's my most common method of communicating with people is actually on live streams. You can catch the recordings, but I like to to go live and, and interact with the audience uh, and talk through legal issues and political issues when I can. Do people ever ask you basketball questions, confusing you with a person who had a name similar to you? This is the first time it's ever happened, Alan. It's never happened before uh-huh. that someone has noticed the similarity in my name to, <laughs> to someone, so someone, my, my someone favorite, quite a bit taller. Well, my favorite Will Chamberlain story is, you know, Will Chamberlain famously said he had sex with 50,000 uh, different women in his career. And um, uh, 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 another uh, basketball player uh, who was very, very well known for being a homebody and, and loving his wife said uh, once on a, a radio interview that, you know, Will Chamberlain and I have something in common Together, we've had sex with 50,001 women. So he got off a very good line there. That's not bad. That's not bad. uh, Not bad. Not bad. So let's remember it's Will Chamberlain, shorter and um, in many ways more interesting. So uh, please. (laughs) But not quite uh, as prolific, sadly. uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) Please, uh, please uh, listen to to Will and and tune into his... uh, uh, Twitter and his uh, uh, other accounts. And, and uh, it's great to have you out there. You're a, a, a fresh uh, voice and a voice that makes me encouraged and optimistic about uh, your generation, about the generation uh, between yours and uh, my grandchildren's. And so uh, uh, you've made me an optimist today. You know, uh, in Israel, they say the difference between a pessimist and an optimist is a pessimist says, oy vey, things are so bad they can't possibly get worse. And an optimist says, yes, they can. 
Uh, so <laughs> I'm an optimist. I think things can get worse. But I think when I interview somebody like you, I think things are going to get better. So thank you so much for your great insights and for speaking to my wonderful audience on The Dirt Show. Thank you so much, Alan. It's been an honor. I really appreciate it. Thank you. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216 710 0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on the Dirt Show.